I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Amen. Amen. Y'all be praying for Pastor Tim and the group as they are headed into Israel. As you could imagine, leading a group through a foreign country can be a daunting task, but we know that the Lord is going to teach them incredible things as they are out on their trip. So, over the past several weeks, we have been reading someone else's mail. We have been in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, looking at the letters written to the churches. And I have to say, last week, the letter to Laodicea, the comfortable church, man, that really got under my skin a little bit, if, we, if I can just be honest for a second. The comfortable church. If, I think if we're being honest, a lot of times in life, we can think, you know, things are going pretty well, I can handle this on my own, and we can drift away from the Father because we are comfortable. And I was thinking about that bell curve that Pastor Tim was talking about, the life cycle of churches. It starts and it goes up, and and things are blowing and going, and you're hanging on for dear life because you don't have time to worry about the little odds and ends, the little preferential things that come into play. But I want you to know that whenever we live life with an urgency for the gospel of Jesus, we only have enough energy and enough time to focus on that which is essential, which is the cross of Jesus. So I have been led to Philippians chapter 2, was reading through the book of Philippians in preparation for our summer camp. We're already preparing our small group material. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 just really captured my attention and drew me in. And there is no way that we're going to be able to cover every idea presented in these first 11 verses of chapter 2 today. There are important theological implications. There are ecclesiological implications about the church. We can get into hermeneutics and homiletics, and we could have us a good old-fashioned seminary class today, but that's not the purpose of the text, right? The purpose of this text is very, very practical and is very Christ-minded in the way that we relate to one another. We saw an example of this in our foundations reading just a couple weeks ago. We see a rich young ruler who approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus, of course, refers to some commandments from the Old Testament. He says, well, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. And the young man says, well, I've kept all of those since I was young. What still do I lack? And then Jesus says, but you lack one thing, go and sell all your possessions to the poor. Of course, the point that Jesus was making in that moment was not that he had things and that was, a, that was bad. It was because those things were where his treasure was. His heart was after his belongings, and they were leading him away from the Father because he was comfortable. So my prayer for you today is that you would be encouraged that we would realize that we don't have the luxury of living a life that is comfortable because there are people all around us that are dying without Jesus every single day. And we have to stay laser focused on the calling that God has for us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read our passage together and then we're going to go back and read through it again together 
as we teach through the passage. Starting in verse number one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can we pray together? Lord, we are thankful that we get to approach your throne. Lord, that you even hear our prayers. And God, we thank you that you give us this beautiful image in Jesus of who you are. Lord, even in in your scriptures, you say if we want to know you, we can look to the Son. And God, I pray that we would look to the Son this morning and we would see this perfect example of humility, of unity, of striving together as the body of Christ. God, this morning, I've so many people in our fellowship come to my mind who are, God, dealing with sickness, who have a need that only you can meet. And God, I pray that you would be near to them this morning. Lord, I know there are several who are not able to be with us this morning because of their condition, Lord. But God, I pray that even in their absence, they would feel you near to them. Lord, this morning, we want our mind to be more like your mind, our desires to be more like your desires, our affections, our plans, our words, our actions to be more like you and less about us. So God, I pray this morning that we would see our role in serving the kingdom of God in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins into this line of thinking about the subject of unity earlier in chapter 1. If you were to look in your Bible, that paragraph would actually start back in verse 27, where the Apostle Paul is talking to them about other people who are preaching the gospel. But in that, in that paragraph, he's talking to them about standing firm and being unified together. In our foundations reading just this last week, we saw the Apostle Paul uh, encounter Jesus on the road to Damascus. First, he was Saul. He was the one who was actively persecuting the church, encounters Jesus. Everything is changed. The Lord appears in a vision to a man named Ananias, and he says, hey, this man named Saul is coming to you. And Ananias is like, oh, I don't want him to come here. Lord, what is your plan? And God is saying, Ananias, I have something incredible for him. He is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's going to take the gospel to the world. And as Paul is traveling around, we can look into Philippians chapter 1, and we can see Paul approach towns, and he hears people that are preaching the gospel. Some are doing it from good motives, but others are preaching the gospel so that they can promote themselves. 
Some are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition rather than about the truth of the gospel of Jesus, rather than the humility of God the Son. So Paul is urging them to complete unity. I want you to see that in verse 2 today, that Paul is leading them to strive together. He says, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry and with selfish ambition, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But here's a truth that we know is that our heart is deceitful above all things. Our hearts are deceitful. We are our own worst enemies. I can stand before you today and tell you, I know that I'm my own worst enemy. I know that. If you don't believe me, the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? James, the brother of Jesus says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. In other words, guard your heart. There are enough troubles in the world today. There are enough troubles from the outside of the church that we don't need to add any of our own on the inside of the church. But because we are imperfect people who are living together, who are striving for unity, there's going to be some kind of disunity that comes into the church. And Paul is writing to this church of believers in Philippi, and he's saying, have this mind among yourselves. Complete my joy of being the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, he's saying, keep the focus on Jesus. Keep the focus on what we have a similar mind of. Warren Wiersbe once said that true spiritual unity comes from within, it is a matter of the heart. But we've already said that our heart is deceitful. So true spiritual unity comes in, and I don't want to freak anybody out with this phrase, but we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you are saved, when you receive Jesus, you receive the power of the Spirit. And what that looks like is denying ourselves to live for the sake of the gospel, of putting our own selfish ambitions and desires aside so that we can live together in perfect unity, having one mind in Christ, of overcoming, overcoming by the power of the Spirit our own evil thoughts, our own evil desires, our own selfish ambition that sneaks up so quickly. Paul is referring to the spiritual motives behind our actions. Almost every single week, whenever I teach to teenagers, there is a moment that comes up that goes something like this. The actions that you do from day to day implicate the conditions of your heart. In other words, you can look at the things that you do and see the things that you care about. Okay, for, for, for them, it's usually, hey, if you're spending, you know, four days out of the week playing Fortnite or Rocket League, I know what you care about, okay? Which to them, I say, in three years, nobody's going to care about that anyway, so let's focus on something that's worthwhile. But to us, typically, we focus on ourselves. We focus on becoming the best version of ourselves. Any leadership school or, or of thought that is out there today talks about embettering ourselves and focusing on ourselves and becoming more efficient. But here in the scriptures, we see, we see Paul telling people to come to unity together and valuing the people that are around them and having community together. That's something that is so different than what we see in the world around us. Spiritual unity comes from the heart. 
But Paul is also writing about a form of disagreement that comes up in the church. And I'm not talking about matters of truth. I'm talking about matters of preference that sneak into the church. You have maybe heard someone talk about an argument in a church split over the color of the carpet or the color of the walls. But I would tell you that it has something to do even more than that because long before those arguments get to those points, the conditions of the people's hearts are far from him. Sometimes it has more to do with our disposition towards an issue rather than the actual issue that is at hand. Whereas if we would treat one another with love and affection that Paul is talking about, we wouldn't even get to some of those arguments to begin with. And that's something that is so true in the life of the church that we don't need to invite more issues in. We have enough as it is. But we have the power of the Spirit as our X factor to overcome Paul is telling the church at Philippi that their hearts are full of pride and selfishness, which robs joy rather than completing it. And he is bringing them into this higher calling of unity under the umbrella of the cross of Jesus, appointing everyone towards him for the advancement of the gospel. We are focused on a common goal, concentrating together to grow the kingdom of heaven that is eternal. We are not, our goal, I promise you, our staff's goal is not to make the Point Church as big as we can. Our goal is to lead as many people to the foot of the cross as possible. To lead as many people to repent of their sin and put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Okay, nobody's going to get saved if they put their faith and their trust in John or Tim. They're going to be disappointed. Our goal is to point people directly towards the cross and for us to come together as a church under our mission of loving people to the point of life, Jesus Christ, of loving people to the point of life. So next, I want you to see in verses 3 and 4 a devoted selflessness that Paul is calling the church to. Devoted selflessness, something that is you typically outside of our vocabulary because we live for ourselves. We focus on ourselves. Verses three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So Paul introduces a concept to them of humility that would strike the hearers of this letter as odd because they would be familiar with Greek literature at this point, especially the church that he's writing to, and they would be able to see selfish ambition and pride to a great extent can ultimately lead to a downfall. They've seen that in their culture, but humility, that was a word that they described the servants as, the people who were working for the families. If we're talking about humility, that means that we're subjected to a higher power. And the Apostle Paul is saying that's where the power comes from because we are subjected to a higher authority, to a higher power who is God the Father, who is God the Son, who is the Holy Spirit, who is the creator of life, who is the creator of heaven and earth, who knows infinitely more about life than we do. So of course we should be subjected to him so that we can be freed from ourselves and from our own deceitful hearts. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. We're really bad about promoting ourselves. Can I just talk about my generation for a minute? 
I have a lot of friends that refer to themselves as brands. Um, they even talked about, like, when they were talking about having a child, they said, well, you know, we're going to have to make sure that they're going to be okay to fit into our brand. I'm going, what is, one, what does that even mean? And two, are your priorities so messed up that you're trying to promote and literally sell yourself as, as an idea? We're not created to be brands. We're created to be human beings who have the breath of life in us. We are created for community to lead one another, to edify the body of Christ, to grow the kingdom of heaven, to live for the glory of God, not to promote ourselves and show the highlights and make sure that the like number goes up. The Apostle Paul understood that Jesus was bringing in the kingdom of heaven, and that does not look like the kingdom of man. Okay, y'all work with me for a minute. When Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told, he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who seek the face of God. Not blessed is the one who works the hardest and gets the promotion and has the perfect family. Blessed is the one who believes in himself. He says, blessed is the one who, blessed are the humble Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about your heart. And it doesn't matter how many deep theological concepts we get into. You can learn all of the right things and you can know all of the right things. But in the end, if we don't put it into practice, our heart is far from him. We're going to be just like the rich young ruler who left Jesus and was disappointed. And my prayer for you today is that you would be changed to be more like Jesus. That you would care about the things that he cares about. Is anyone familiar with the Enneagram? Some of you just perked up. I saw, I saw a bunch of heads just do like this. Other, others of you are going, I don't know what that word is. It is essentially a personality test that you take that tells you the motives of why you behave the way that you do. Okay, so last year or maybe a couple years ago at this point, I'm not sure, I took this Enneagram test. It was very, very lengthy. You go through and you answer a lot of yes or no questions. There's a lot of, you know, I totally agree with this. I don't agree with this. And at the end, it calculates everything and it, it spits out a number that talks about you. Okay, so I am a, an Enneagram type two. All right, there's a one through nine and a two is, is called the helper, right, which you know, you're probably going, wow, okay, that's great. You're a helper. So as I'm reading about the helper, the next sentence is, not all type twos are women, but most are. I'm like, <laughs> okay, great. So as I'm reading, it's talking about the motives of a helper is to be needed and to be wanted. And the way that we show that is by helping meet the needs of others. Okay, and as you read down, some of you are going, I'm going to write this down for my resume later. Um, <laughs> as you meet the needs of other people, you will push your needs aside to make sure that they're met. Okay, so ultimately on your resume, you can say, I care too much. I try too hard. I, you know, put other people above myself. But there's a very dark side to that. As you meet people's needs, eventually you start to realize nobody's meeting my needs. And you are like the frog in the boiling pot of water, and you start losing your mind once you realize, I'm being left aside. Our heart is deceitful above all things. We can start from the absolute best intentions, and in the blink of an eye, we can end up going down a selfish path, even if we are serving other people. Because here's what happens. As we take care of other people, whenever we realize they don't really care about my well-being, that turns into 
anger that turns into thinking less of that person, and that is not a good thing. So whenever, whenever I read the scriptures, when it talks about the humility of Jesus, when it talks about him coming to ultimately be a helper, he, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper. Part of me thinks Jesus never came and asked us for anything, ever. He didn't ask us for anything, but he did come to lay down his life for us. So here's the deal. The Apostle Paul is telling us that we should have this mind among ourselves, that we love one another. Warren Wiersbe said the submissive mind does not mean that the believer is at the beck and call of everybody else or is that he is a religious doormat for everyone to use. Some people try to purchase friends and maintain church unity by, quote, giving in to everyone else's whims and wishes. This is not what Paul is suggesting at all. The scripture puts it perfectly, ourselves, your servants, for Jesus's sake. Humility doesn't mean getting run over and taken advantage of by everyone who says, I need help. Humility is understanding that we're not the center of attention, that the focus is on Jesus and not on John or Tim or Joe or any of us, but understanding that we are a small part of God's redemptive plan for mankind, and that is an honor for us to even be a part of. So we should be focused on that whenever we deal with people. C.S. Lewis said this, and I'm sure you've heard this before, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. All right, let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And I'm afraid that in the humble brag generation, we can't even get away with talking about something that we've done that's good without elevating ourselves. There is a way that we can serve one another without taking a picture of it and posting it somewhere. All right, are you tracking with me? There is a way that we can serve the Lord without elevating ourselves. He must increase and we must decrease. Are you thinking about others in your life or are you thinking about yourself? Are you walking through life with your blinders on or more or less staring at what's in front of you and missing out on all of the people that are around you? You know, when Jordan and I moved to Pensacola, we realized something about the town very, very quickly. And I'm sure you've realized this too. When you're on the road, you are either in beach traffic or you're in a qualifying lap for Talladega. And there is nothing in between, okay? <laughs> if you don't believe me, get out on Sorrento Road in the afternoon at any time. And especially at night, y'all, I'm telling you, every Wednesday night when I leave and go home, there's people behind me flashing their lights and they're on the horn and I'm going... I'm going two or three over the speed limit right now. What's the deal? I don't understand it. But after a while, I started to take personal offense to this. I don't know if you've ever done this in the car. And I'm complaining. And finally, Jordan looked at me one day and she said, you really think that these people are out to get you? I'm going, clearly they are. Look at their behavior on the street. They've seen my gold grandma car going down the road. And I don't know what about it, but they said, I'm going to pick on him. She said, people are just focused on themselves. They're probably running late to somewhere. They're probably trying to get somewhere in a hurry. They're not even thinking about you. How dangerous would that be if we take that mentality and we bring it into the church and we focus on ourselves whenever we are surrounded by a lost and dying world? There are so many churches, and I thank God that the, the Point Church is not one of these, that are so inwardly focused that they wouldn't know what to do if someone who visited walked in one day. 
who wouldn't know how to receive someone into their home. I'm thankful that we have home groups that meet around, that have, that have one another into their house. I'm thankful that we actively look for ways that we can get the gospel out into our community. That's not a humble brag. That is the mission that we have of loving people to the point of life, Jesus Christ. The mission that God has called us to. So here's the deal. I don't want you to miss this. Selfish thinking those blinders, that selfish thinking renders the church powerless because we are not called to focus on ourselves. We are called to love the Lord and love other people. And I understand that that second part is really hard about loving people, but we are called to that. If we spend so much time thinking about ourselves, eventually internal conflict comes into the church but God has called us to something that is far superior and far greater. So as we transition into this second half of this passage, verses 5 through 11, I told you we weren't going to get into all the $10 worded ideas about this today, but there's one that just, man, this is amazing. In the studies of of this week leading up to today, I found out that verses 5 through 11, a lot of scholars think that this is a pre-Pauline hymn, meaning before Paul even encountered Jesus that this was a hymn that the church would get together and sing. Now, of course, as the translation into English comes, we lose a little bit of of rhythmic wording, as you would see. But I want you to understand that the focus of this song or the focus of this hymn is not on me or my emotions or what I'm going to do for God, but it is 100% on the cross. It's 100% on who Jesus is. And I'm thankful that we sing songs here that focus on Jesus, that focus on the cross. And it focuses on his drastic humility. So I want you to see this in verses 5 through 7. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours, which means you have the mind of Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you have this mind that is in you. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Notice the condition of Jesus. In the form of God. Jesus didn't begin when he was born into the world. He was the pre-existing Christ. He was with God. Uh, In Genesis 1, God is creating through the Son. He is present and he is with God. In John chapter 1, we see this beautiful Christological passage about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By him all things were created. If anyone could consider equality with God, it's Jesus. It is the Son who was with him. So here's my question for you. When we fall short, when we put ourselves in the driver's seat, why do we think that we're equal to God? Why do we think that we can make those calls and those decisions? Because if I'm being honest with you, there's moments where I become selfish. There's moments where I'm looking out for me. There's moments where I put myself in that driver's seat. And if you're being honest with yourself, there's probably moments where you have too. But Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God at all as something to be grasped, to even think of. But he humbled himself to come in the form of a man, to be born a baby without anywhere to lay his head. Have you really thought about that, that Jesus 
the crown jewel of heaven, humbled himself to come in the form of a baby who had to be taken care of, who had to be looked after. Jesus didn't just come as someone who could take care of all of his own needs as a person, but he is still fully God and fully man. The hypostatic union of the, of the God-man is still there, but he comes in the form of a baby. And he lives a perfect and a sinless life. And he heals the sick. And he speaks to the dead. And they come walking out of their tombs. And ultimately, he is convicted as an innocent man and is taken to the cross on Calvary and gives his life for us. This humility that Jesus shows is incredible. But it doesn't stop with humility Because in verse 8, I want you to see this radical obedience that Jesus has. When you think about obedience, there may be a lot of words that come into mind. To obey someone is to follow their commands, restrictions, wishes, or instructions. That doesn't even come from the Bible. That's from the dictionary. But when a child learns to obey their parents, they learn for a lot of different reasons, right? There could be they have done something wrong and there was a bad consequence for that, or they have done something good and there was a good outcome of that. But eventually, and yes, this happens in, even in the teenage years, I love these moments, when there is a light bulb moment and they realize, maybe mom and dad know a little bit more about life than I do. Maybe they have my best interest at heart like they've been saying all of these years. Maybe they're looking at this situation a little bit differently than I have before. Because remember, we're all selfish. We have our blinders on. And I had my fair share of moments as a teenager where I'm going, Mom and Dad, y'all don't understand what it's like to be me. Okay, we've all been there. But we treat God the same way. He is the creator and the originer of life, of love. And we say, God, you don't know what it's like to be me. There's an exception here. Well, I don't know about you, but I've not hung on a cross I don't know exactly what our Savior experienced because he paid that debt for me. And he allows us to be freed from the shackles of sin so that we can follow him in spirit and truth. Jesus submits to the Father in a radical obedience. In the garden, Jesus is praying and he asks the Father, Lord, if there is a way, let this cup pass from me. Do you remember that in the scriptures? But if you look in John chapter 17, there's a little bit more detail into that prayer. Jesus isn't praying for himself. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for the disciples, for everyone who would come after them who would know. And I don't want you to miss on what the subject of his prayer was. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they might be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Even as Jesus is staring the face of the cross, down. He is praying for our unity. He's praying for our unity, that we would focus on what matters and not on the little things. Let me tell you all about a little thing this morning. I walked outside. I was getting ready to come to the church. 
and there was ice on my windshield. I don't like it when there's ice on the windshield of the car. We live in Florida. This is false advertising. It's supposed to be the Sunshine State. So I grab my little Chick-fil-A gift card, and I'm scratching all the ice off the card. I can't even read the code anymore. I'm going to have to go in there and see if they'll let me use it now. And in that moment, after studying the scriptures, after preaching this sermon last night and listening to it in my headphones so I could keep up with all my points, I'm thinking about, woe is me that I'm out here scratching off the ice on the windshield. If we are moved astray by such small things, how are we going to follow Jesus when it comes to the big things? And I just felt conviction in that moment, knowing that even sometimes it's easy to trust God when the big things happen, but in the small day-to-day moments of life, it's easy for us to take our eyes off of the cross. It's easy for us to lose focus and start to focus on ourselves. But even when Jesus is staring the cross in the face, he cares about others. Verse number eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are of one mind and one spirit to see the kingdom of God expanded. And if we are not, if we're worried about ourselves, and look, hear me, I understand that life is difficult. Some of you are going through some very difficult seasons of life. And I'm not saying that you don't need to think about yourself in in that regard. But what I am saying is that when it comes to the unity of our church, if we are focused on pulling apart the threads that keep the gospel message going out, then we are in sin. But we are supposed to bear one another's burdens and walk through life with one another for the edification and the building of God's kingdom. That is what the church is supposed to look like. We're supposed to think of others. And at the end of this passage, verses 9 through 11, we see this incredible moment of praise. I want you to see the verses 9 through 11, continuous praise. Remember, Jesus was, is, will always be. And the focus of the church is to worship him, is to praise him. He is the only object that is worthy of our praise. Anything else that we could possibly worship has been created by him and through him and is thus less than him. We can't be focused on things or people or ideas outside of Jesus and outside of the cross. The goal of our gatherings each week is for edification, for building up the saints. It is for the proclamation of God's word. It is for encouragement. I pray that you are encouraged whenever you leave here today. But the overarching theme is of praising Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God has exalted the Son, the one who humbled himself, who voluntarily humbled himself to come in the form of a man who gave his life on the cross. He is seated at the right hand of God because his work is finished. We don't serve a God who's laying in the ground somewhere. We serve a God who is alive, who gives us a vision to change the world for his name's sake, not for ours. And here in the Greek, when it talks about the name that is above every name, it uses the word kyrios. Don't quote me on the pronunciation of that. I've not taken Greek 
But I was reading about this, and ultimately it means Lord. And Paul masterfully crafts this together to say that God elevates the Lord to the name that is above all names. So he elevates Adonai, he elevates Jesus to the level of Yahweh, which to the Jews that were reading this would think that that was impossible because the name that is above all names is reserved for the Father. But Paul is saying, but so is it for the Son. So is it for the Son, for the one who has conquered death. He's saying that Jesus is God. And if we miss out on that, if we miss out on the fact that Jesus is the Kyrios, that he is Lord, that he is exalted through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he has defeated death, that he invites you into life, then we miss out on the message of the Scriptures. Ultimately, everyone who will acknowledge Jesus, that he is the true King of kings, everyone will bend their knee. Every knee will bow, as the Scriptures say. Every tongue will confess. Wearsby says that to bow before him now means salvation, but to bow before him at judgment means condemnation which just underscores the need that we have to go and share the gospel of Jesus now. So this concept of bowing is found all throughout the scriptures. It is a humbling of oneself to someone of higher authority. You can go into many other cultures and see the same thing happen. The Romans would certainly bow before Caesar because they believed that he was the supreme being on the planet. But here's the deal. Everyone is bowing to someone. All of us are. And the scriptures are clear. You can't serve two masters. We can't bow to Jesus and then bow on the altar to ourselves. We can't bow to Jesus and bow to the altar of money. We can't bow to Jesus and bow to the altar of pleasure. My question for you today, before we get any further, is who are you bowing to? Are you bowing to yourself or are you bowing to King Jesus? Because I promise you, he's worth it every single time. He's worth it. Paul clearly tells us the what and the why of his mission here. And, of course, we know that as he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in Jesus, the true nature of the living God has been revealed through the Son. The Scriptures say that if we want to know about the Father, we can look to the Son. And I know there may be some of you in here today who view God as this far-off being who's mad about the way that we live life and, and wishes harm on us. But there is no way that we can take the Scripture seriously. There's no way that we can look at this book and think that God is this far-off, angry being whenever His entire goal is to dwell with His people. We see it in the garden. We see Him walking with Adam and Eve. We see Jesus humble Himself and come in the form of a man that lives a perfect, sinless life. And ultimately, in the end, in heaven, it's not about the streets of gold. They pave that because it doesn't matter. We kill ourselves over here. They pave the streets with it. The purpose of heaven is that we're in the presence of God and that he is dwelling with us. And that's such a beautiful image that we get from the gospel. Jesus is most truly known as the one whose equality with God was not grasped, but he poured himself out in sacrificial love for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were far from him, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks out at the ones who are mocking him and who are sentencing him to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is a theme through not only the life of Jesus, but even through disciples through the, throughout the New Testament. They are seeking in these letters that we see. They are seeking to ground the church into the person of Jesus, not even into themselves. The only time the Apostle Paul elevates himself is whenever he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. So how do you live your life? Do you live in a way that people see Jesus? Do you walk humbly or are you walking around with your blinders on, worried about yourself? If that's you, I want to challenge you to take the blinders off today and look around at the people who are around you and see that there's needs. James even says that if we see good and we don't do it, then that's a sin. So we need to love ones around us.